Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this is the History Hit Warfare podcast. We're celebrating a bit of a milestone at the moment. We've hit a million listens, and this is thanks to all of you. I've really enjoyed hearing from so many of you over the last few months. Tell me about what episodes you've liked, what you want to hear next, and your own family histories. So keep it up. We've got a dedicated email address now. It's warfare at historyhit.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at historyhitww2 and on Instagram at James Rogers History. Now, I'm doubly excited because in this episode, we have the brilliant John Nickel on the podcast. John is, of course, an ex-REF tornado navigator who was shot down during the first Gulf War. He was tortured and paraded on international television. Now he's written a new book on that very aircraft he was shot down in, the Tornado. John explains the history of this aircraft in incredible detail, revealing its high-tech specifications and, for the first time, many of the personal stories of the people who flew them. So here he is, John Nickel on the Tornado. Hi, John. Thanks for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Really, really well. Thank you. Enjoying the decent weather. Looking forward to getting out and about a bit. You know. Good. Well, how's your summer going? I mean, I assume it must be busy promoting the new book, but have you had time to enjoy the sun? Yes. You know, Kay, the book has been doing really well. I've done loads of interviews and stuff. Um, I think it was hovering around number two, or sorry, it was at number two, in the Sunday Times bestseller list. It was number one in the Saturday Times bestseller list. Not quite sure how that, seriously, I don't know how that works. <laughs> but, you know, you can't complain. You know, people are having a tough time at the moment, aren't they? So, you know, me having to do some book promotion and sit in my office rather than do anything else, can't really, it would be rude to moan about that, wouldn't it? Well, it would, but either way, we can help push this up to number one, I am sure. So, <laughs> that would be good. That would be good. Let's talk about the book then, Tornado in the Eye of the Storm. I want to hear a bit about the tornado itself. I'm a historian of air power, of air power strategy. I am specifically fascinated with drone warfare, actually, but the tornado also fascinates me. So tell me, what makes it an aircraft worthy of a book that will stand next to those on Spitfires and Lancasters? What is its history? The tornado was an incredible aircraft of its time. So it was a 1960s conceived Cold War aircraft 
designed to be part of the Royal Air Force's massive, as it was then, aviation arsenal. And it was designed for two purposes, really. So obviously offensive operations. So its primary weapon when it came into service was the JP-233 runway denial weapon. And the tornado's task, if the Cold War had ever gone hot, was on the first couple of days to destroy as many Soviet airfields as possible to stop their aircraft getting off the ground, to hold back a Soviet advance until the Americans could get across the pond and keep that Warsaw Pact advance from pushing through what was then a very divided Europe in the 60s and the 70s, obviously. And we practised this continuously in the Royal Air Force. If that all went south, and normally on the third day of our extensive rehearsals, and we did rehearsals all the time, it would go south and we would resort to nuclear weapons and we would use what you would probably call a tactical nuclear weapon to hold back a massive push from the Warsaw Pact. And if that didn't work, we would go to the end and it would be what we would refer to as a mass launch. And it would be every single NATO aircraft taking off for a devastating nuclear attack. And we practiced that endlessly. And because of that, I can honestly say that when I joined the Royal Air Force, and especially when I became a tornado navigator a bit later, I never expected to go to war in a tornado. Well, yeah, that makes sense. If you're looking at this massive preponderance of force against the Warsaw Pact, then you're hoping that's never going to happen. But you did go to war in a tornado. You were trained for very different circumstances, though. How did the tornado fare in those conditions against Saddam's air force, against the Iraqi military? Well, in actual fact, I mean, we were trained to use the tornado to the best of its ability. And so the tornado was an amazing aircraft, as I say, of its era, especially with its terrain-following radar. Back in the day when I started in the 1980s, you didn't have things like global positioning. So what many people would understand as sat-nav. If you look at a glass cockpit aircraft like a Typhoon or a Strike Eagle or a, an F-35, everything is linked to global positioning. So you know where you are all of the time. And you can use that global positioning to determine what your tactics are going to be, where you go, what you do and how you do it. The Tornado didn't have that. It didn't have any night vision equipment when it came in. So you couldn't see in the dark the way everybody now understands that almost everybody operates. So the tornado relied on its terrain-following radar. So the radar would sweep the ground ahead of the aircraft, and it was linked to the autopilot, and the autopilot would fly the aircraft. So we were trained to, and we practiced this in places like Goose Bay in Canada, in bad weather, total cloud cover, zero visibility at night, the tornado would fly itself at 600, 650 mile an hour, 200 feet above the earth. 200 feet. And so we were practiced in doing that. And that was for nighttime tactics or bad weather tactics. Daytime tactics, we practiced before the Iraq war, flying the jet, or the pilots flew the jet, they got me in the back as a nav, sat and monitored, visually flying at 100 feet. That's the same as you driving your car down a motorway. You're looking ahead and you're looking at the other traffic, you're looking at motorway stanchions, you're looking at the way the motorway bends, and you're travelling at 70 mile an hour and you drive. That's how you do it. And in a tornado, our pilots, in the run-up to the Gulf War, we trained down to probably 30 feet and 650 mile an hour. So the pilots in the front seat were totally concentrating visually 
on flying the jet while the nav in the back was concentrating totally on weapons and tactics. So we had trained to do all of those things. So when we went to war on the 17th of January, we were ready. We had planned, we trained, we knew exactly what we could do. We knew what the jet would do. And so in theory, we were ready. We were trained against radar systems, missile systems, hostile aircraft. The Iraqi systems were predominantly Soviet-era systems and Soviet-built systems, apart from a few French ones. So we were ready in theory. The practice was somewhat different. Yes, the practice was somewhat different. I mean, when you're flying these aircraft at, did you say down to 30 feet? Yeah, 30 feet, 10 metres. 10 metres. 10 metres and 650 mile an hour, visually. So there's no autopilot now. This is the pilot with his, because it was all his there, obviously it would, you know, that's different now, but it was all male then, with his hands on the controls, you know, looking ahead, avoiding stuff. When you're flying on TFR at 200 feet at night, the pilot is sitting with his hands off the controls, on his lap, not touching anything. Don't touch that. You have to get a big stick from the back. Don't you touch anything. And the jet is flying itself. But no, 30 feet visually during the day. We were trained at doing that. And how long did it take you to trust the TFR? Because I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I barely want to sit in a Tesla and let it drive me, let alone let an aircraft drive me. It's a really me. good question, bearing in mind that I don't think it'll be that long before we have kind of fully automated cars with, you know, pods, no steering wheel or anything like that. We think of it now as almost space technology, science fiction, but it's not. The technology is always already there and it is safer than a driver. And that's not to say there have been accidents, but a computer-driven car is safer than a driver because it doesn't make the mistakes of judgment that a driver would. Not to say that there's not accidents. Um, you know, so oh, most people in the future will have trust in a uh, computer-driven car. And we had trained on the Tornado. It was designed, we'd been doing it since the very first days that we'd been flying it. So the first thing that you do is you do it during the day. So you put the TFR in and you do it during the day and it's going up and down and up and down through the valleys and across the hills and over power lines and it will see everything. This is the theory, ask me about that when I've finished this bit. So then you did it at night, but in an area where you could see, so there was ambient light and you could see it flying you over hills. And then you did it in an area where there's no light or in total cloud and you knew that the jet was trustworthy. There was one slight point with that, what they found Probably in, I think, in the September or the October when we were training, we were training down in Amman and a couple of the crews kind of were doing TFR at night, flying over and somebody felt kind of a bump type thing. And they said, this is really curious. There's something not right here because it's dark. You can't see anything. And that radar bleeped. So there's a radar that the radio, radar altimeter that tells you how high above the ground you are. And normally it should show 200 feet all the time as the aircraft adjusts its height. And that radar went bleep as it kind of suddenly went down to almost zero and they flew it the next day in daylight and the radar could not see massive sand dunes. So there was a couple of 200 foot sand dunes on the route and they'd gone over the top of 200 foot sand dunes at about 10 feet. And you know, they were lucky that they survived. If they'd have crashed, nobody would have known why really. So they just tweaked the software. It's like going back to Tesla and tweaking the software. So they just tweaked the software and it kind of performed perfectly. And it did perform perfectly. Sorry, I'm, I'm waxing on lyrical here. We're not moving this story on much, are we, James? Hey, you know, I'm well into the technical details of it. Don't you worry at all. 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and in my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, I'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Belethgeth to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. When it came down to the actual war itself, of course, Saddam invades Kuwait and we have an international coalition of the willing, one of the biggest coalitions in the history of warfare coming together to push Saddam back out of Kuwait to uphold the sovereignty of that country. When it came down to actually fighting in battle, how was the tornado? How were these technologies? Was this low-flying tactic the best tactic? It's something that's quite alien to us now. When you think about air power, you think about flying as high as possible to evade any sort of anti-aircraft capabilities. And, well, zero chance really nowadays of being shot down in asymmetric warfare, at least. And this is, of course, a turn towards drones as well. I mean, I would disagree with the fact that there's zero chance of being shot down. I think you don't have to go back that far. Syria, five years ago, aircraft being shot down and pilots being burnt alive in cages. Go back a little bit further, two F-117s or one F-117 shot down over Serbia using an old system. I think I'd be very, very wary of seeing that you wouldn't be shot down, especially with really modern Soviet systems. But you're absolutely right. And what is interesting is there was a lot of talk at the time, and it's still one of those almost military urban myths that the low-level tactics were wrong and only the tornadoes were doing it. This is nonsense. Everybody was flying at low level on the first two, three, four nights of the war. So You've got B-52s, and there's an account in the book of a B-52 pilot going into a chemical weapons establishment somewhere up near Mosul, I think it is, in the north. And he's flying at 50 feet in a B-52. What's the wingspan of a B-52? 
185 feet or something like that. Or something they are like. massive, yeah. Um, and he's flying at 50 feet, and they're not using terrain-following radar. He's literally kind of using ambient light in his radalt, and his crew are getting very twitchy bottoms, I can tell you. And so the Strike Eagles, at the time, one of the most modern aircraft that the Coalition had, the Strike Eagles were flying at low level. Two were shot down in the first couple of days. One crew killed, one crew taken prisoner. The A6s of the carriers were flying at low level. You know, so loads of the Striker aircraft were flying at low level. It was a nonsense and a real misunderstanding to suggest only the tornadoes were. It was, but... And this is where I said that the theory was all very well. The practice was different. The difference was, so we were trained against radar systems, surface-to-air missile systems, fighters. What nobody fully understood was the depth and the effect of the AAA, the flak, the anti-aircraft artillery. And so on that first night, and the story is in the book, when a good friend of mine is leading kind of eight aircraft through the darkness, can't see anything, Total blackness, like a black cloak is over the cockpit. All you've got is the glow of the instruments. If you held a hand out, you couldn't see a hand in front of your face. That's what it's like. And he said, uh, they're flying through the darkness, so the jet's flying, he's got his hands off his controls, just monitoring the system. The jets are doing it themselves. You can't see the jet on your left, on your right. Can't see anything like that. And he said, out in the blackness, I could see a pinprick of light as we crossed the border. And as we got closer, out in my left, that pinprick of light evolved. And I could see it evolving into sparkling lights. And then as we got a bit closer, out in my left, I could see that it was gunfire from the ground. And it was thousands of guns over an airfield spraying what you could just call bullets, explosive bullets, shells, flak, AAA into the air. And they were just firing wildly into the air, but it created a dome of exploding shells from ground level up to about five or six hundred feet. And he said it was like, you know, when you, you had a kid, you have a kaleidoscope and you look through a kaleidoscope and the shapes changed and they glistened and they glowed. And he said that's what it was like. It was like looking into a kaleidoscope, but the kaleidoscope was a kaleidoscope of fire and exploding shells. And he said to his nav in the back seat, my God, look at what's going on over there. Somebody's being hit hard. And as he said that, all the jets flying on autopilot all turned left 30 degrees and they pointed at the exploding wall of lead. And it was their target. And that's what they had to fly into. They were heading into that cauldron of exploding fire. And he said you couldn't do anything about it. You just had to fly into the middle like flying into a glistening Christmas tree. It was like running through a shower, trying to run through without getting wet. And that was the shocker, the ground fire. So the tornado was designed to fly at low levels because we wanted to avoid radar missile systems. We wanted to avoid fighters. And the best place to do that was to be at ultra low level in amongst what we'd call the weeds. But after three days, clearly the tactics changed. We were really fearful of the Iraqi Air Force. They had a really highly trained air force. We had trained them. Many of the people, the older hands on the squadrons, had trained Iraqi pilots in the 1980s. And now they were fighting against them, trying to kill them. So, you know, one of the guys in the book says, I had Iraqi students at my house having a drink. Eight years later, they were trying to kill me and I was trying to kill them. 
So this is masters against students. You know exactly what you were up against and you knew how well-trained they were. And they were well-trained and they were battle-hardened after their wars with Iran. You know, so we were really fearful of the Iraqi Air Force and the Iraqi radar-guided systems, really integrated systems. SAM-2, old but effective, shot down a mate of mine in a Tomcat. SAM-3 shot down a number of aircraft. SAM-6, SAM-8, Roland, the French-made surface-to-air missile system, really effective, shot down my mate. So, you know, we were really fearful. But after three days, it transpired that the Iraqi Air Force were not coming out. They were not going to get off the ground. And every time they got off the ground, they were basically hit by the F-15s, the F-16s that were, you know, patrolling to make sure they didn't get up. And so that's when the tactics changed to different tactics, to medium level tactics, and eventually to laser guided bombing. And did those changes in tactics make a considerable difference? I mean, I know in the first few days of the conflict, there were a number of aircraft shot down. Did this reduce the rate at which aircraft were going down? Because that must have had quite a psychological effect on you and the rest of the guys. Well, they didn't have any sight. I'd been shot down. I wasn't there after the first... (laughs) I was no longer there. I was sitting on my fat backside in Baghdad by then. But there were a number of aircraft. If you look at the list of the aircraft that were shot down, yes, there were a number in the first few days. There's no doubt about that. But they continued to be shot down throughout. And they were shot down by many different ways. For instance, the A-10 tank busters were still had to, by dint of what they did, were operating at relatively low level, attacking the Iraqi troops on the ground. A number of them were shot down. Helicopters. We lost a tornado with a friend of mine in it on the 14th of February. Shot down by two SAM-3s. My mate was killed, Steve Hicks. So aircraft were continuing to be shot down right till the end. And I've just been looking at something else. A friend in an F-16 was shot down, I think, on the 27th of February. So one day before the war ended, shot down at medium level again by a system. So we didn't lose as many as we thought we might, to be perfectly honest. But the notion that the tactics meant that we lost more aircraft, I think, is something that you'd have to fully debate it and understand what aircraft were shot down when and how, basically. And when the aircraft were shot down and, of course, you yourself were captured as a prisoner of war and paraded on international television, this must have also had quite an effect back home on your families. There are also people like Max Collier and Nigel Elsden, who you mentioned in your book, and the effect this has on the crew around you, like Robbie Stewart. And in particular, I found that opening chapter to be fascinating. I really do recommend people read this book for the personal stories that you draw out of that. But to go back to my point about those back home, were the RAF fully supportive of those? Was there good communication links? Or was everybody really just finding out about this conflict via the media? This was almost one of the first wars which was live on television. We hadn't dealt with this before. We'd never seen anything like this before. Never mind the size and the technology. The simple fact that You know, it was being broadcast live on television and it was tough for the families back home. And for me, one of the most moving sections of the book are hearing the family story. And I'd never heard them before. And these are my mates. So we'd never talked about our experiences. So I learned about the other prisoners of war and what they'd gone through. I learned about my mates that had carried on the fight when I was talking to them whilst I was researching to write the book. And more importantly, learning what the families went through of those who were missing because they didn't know who was alive or dead for the whole time. So some 
towards the end were told, OK, we think your loved one is alive. Some were told, we don't know. And they didn't know until everybody had been released who was dead, who was alive. And it was tough. It was really tough for the families. They were in a terrible, terrible spotlight. And, it, the, you know, there was many tears shed when we were recalling those events when I was writing it, that's for sure. Is now the ripe time to recall these memories and face this past? For you, was this quite a cathartic process? I'm not sure I would say cathartic. It was educational. I think it was cathartic for some of the other people who'd never spoken about their experiences before. And it was cathartic in another way I'd never expected. So, you know, the people who are in the book, the kind of the 20 or 30 main characters, they've all read it. Many, many of them said, I had no idea what anybody else had gone through. I did not know what my mates on the squadron had gone through. Some of the, you know, I did not know what the prisoners of war went through. And some of the families said, I didn't know what my husband had gone through. And their husband or their father, who'd been a prisoner of war or been on the front line, said, I had no idea what my family went through. I had no idea what it was like for my 13-year-old daughter to be told that her dad was missing, probably dead. And that was an unusual one for me. This is, you know, Tornado in the Eye of the Storms, my 17th book. And, you know, many of them have been with veterans and I'm used with veterans family saying I never knew what dad did. But I, this was unusual for me to hear. And, you know, these people are still together, if that makes sense. It was really unusual to hear. I didn't know what my dad had gone through in the same way. That's incredible, isn't it? Also, the fact that you're learning new things about your conflict, a conflict that you've written books on before. And this is one that I think really does draw out those personal stories. And we're learning these things for the first time after 30 years. Yeah, I mean, a number of things. So the change in the tactics, when I first started talking to people, they said, do you know what? We don't really know how the change of tactics came about. It just kind of did. Then when I delved further in and spoke to some of the senior commanders, read some of the old papers, you can track what the theory behind it was. And, I, you know, I detail it all in there. What should people take from this book? Why do we need this history now? What can we learn from it about conflict today and perhaps even about the future of warfare? What people can take from this book is what the reality of war is. We sometimes see war told on TV, told in the news. We see a clip of a tornado flying at low level and we imagine that we know what it's like. What I learned from this book, writing it, speaking to my mates, is the reality. And I learned a lot about their reality and they learned a lot about my reality. And I learned about the family's realities and what they went through. And I think when you read it as a whole, as a newcomer to the story of the tornado force, you'll be surprised, you'll be amazed at what people went through, the courage that was shown. And I think when you get to the last chapter, with this chapter that I call Coming Full Circle, you'll see how it affected people and what that war meant 30 years on. And that is a war that still plays loud for many of the people involved. I think that's a really good point. And actually, one thing that struck me there, as you said, that people that are new to this history... And it's, it's strange to think, for, I'm sure for many of our listeners, that the Gulf War is history because, of course, it appears like we've been in Iraq constantly since that point onwards. But you made a, such an interesting point in the book about how a number of the people that continued to fly the tornado up until 2019, wasn't it? Many of those weren't alive when the Gulf War took place. So we need this history now. 
This is modern history. Most of the people are still alive. You'll find that out at the end of the book. So at the tornado disbandment, I met a young tornado pilot who had dropped the last bombs of a tornado in Syria when they were fighting ISIS in early 2019. He had not been born when we dropped the first bombs in 1991. That's staggering. And I told you about the fact that in 1991, many of those who went to war had trained the Iraqis they were trying to kill. Well, that came full circle as well, because after the second Gulf War, in our renewed friendship with Iraq after 2003, Iraqi flying students were then coming back through our training system. So the people that had trained them in 1980s, one of the guys in the book had trained them in the 1980s, tried to kill them in 1991, was training them again in 2006 and 2007. But he said the students came into the headquarters and they looked and he had one of his maps of a target on the wall. And one of the Iraqi students said, my dad was in charge of the air defense sector of that airfield that you attacked. And so he had tried to kill this student's uncle. So, you know, this cycle, this sinusoidal wave of military involvement around the world was just coming around again. And when you think of it like that, that's kind of quite curious to think about how the tornado story kind of moved on. Moved on and links into the politics of war. So tell us, John, when is the book out and where can people buy it? The book is out right now. I would always encourage people to shop local, go to your local bookshop, especially as... I signed six and a half thousand copies before it was published, and most of them have gone to local bookshops to sell as signed books, so you can get it signed, and most local bookshops will sell online. So if you just search Tornado in the Eye of the Storm, John Nickel signed copies, you'll find loads of access, and it's obviously available at all of the usual outlets as well. Yep, support your local bookshops. It's been a hard couple of years. John, rest your hands, enjoy your summer. Thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. No worries at all. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.